Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5? Well, we have entered into a major section in the book of Ephesians from verses 22 through 33 of chapter 5, which we are calling God's design for a spirit-filled marriage. And of course, the whole passage is built on verse 18, where Paul commanded us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the secret to everything in the Christian life that we are filled with, controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because only when we're walking with God in the Spirit can we ever begin to do what God has commanded us to do in this life. So a very important point. God is not asking us to live a supernatural life with natural abilities. He always commands things but then provides the power to obey those supernatural commands if we will look to Him and be willing to obey all that He has said. Now, as I said last week, it is not always easy obeying everything God has said, but always necessary. Not always easy, but always necessary. And again, let me remind you as we talk about marriage this morning, that God designed it. Marriage is not an invention of man, it is the creation of God. And as such, only God has the right to tell us what it is, what it looks like, how it's to function, and only God has the right to lay down the instructions that we are to follow, that our marriages might be all that He wants them to be, so that He is glorified, and of course, we are blessed. So, very important point, and I realize, as we talked about last week, as God gets into the roles for men and women in marriage here in chapter 5, these instructions are totally at odds with the culture around us. But that's okay, because Jesus said to us, who are His disciples, you know, woe to you when the world loves you and speaks well of you. If the world loves you, you, if you claim to be a Christian and the world sings your praises, something's wrong. Because Jesus said, they love the false prophets who were before you. Because if you really belong to me and you're standing up for me and living for me and preaching my word, the world is going to hate you like it hated me. Now, let me just say this as we begin. Uh, again, it's not my intention this morning to condemn or put anyone on a guilt trip. Uh, that's not my intent at all. Honestly, I just want your lives, your marriages, and your families to be all that God wants them to be so that He might do for them all He desires to do. That's my desire here. I know some of these things are going to be very difficult to hear because literally, folks, we have been brainwashed all of our lives before we got saved. The God of this world who owns and controls all the media, basically, has been pumping into our brains, as we have already said for years through television and radio and music and, and movies and all these things, His godless agenda. And when we get saved, what we have to do is get unbrainwashed. As Paul said in Romans 12, he says, don't be any longer conformed to this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that only happens as you feed your mind the Word of God. It will clean out all the junk of the world and allow you to think the way God wants you to think. I'm asking you this morning to just open yourself up enough to listen to what God has to say. Don't close your mind when I start getting into the hard stuff. At least be open to, to hearing what God has to say, then go home and pray about God giving you grace to apply these things. This morning, I'm going to kind of associate myself with John the Baptist without the modified Tarzan outfit. John the Baptist was raised up by God to call his nation back 
into obedience to God. I don't have to tell you guys, you already know. The whole social order of our nation, and in particular our families, have begun to break down. We are witnessing the death of the family, the weakening of the church, and the deterioration and disintegration of our nation. We see kids growing up in Christian homes. I'm not talking about the world right now. I'm talking about Christian homes who don't have a love for God, who don't really have any knowledge of God, and in many respects don't have any hunger for the Word of God. Why? Well, I think it's because somewhere along the way they are not getting the spiritual guidance at home that they need. Now, again, I'm playing John the Baptist. Many in John's day thought he was a radical. Some thought he was a bit of a nut because... He was calling his nation back to a lifestyle of total obedience to God that many thought was extreme and out of touch with reality. But folks, these are tough times, and tough times have always, always called for strong actions in dealing with serious problems. One of the main problems today is that most people in this country are too complacent and often selfish to even recognize there is a problem let alone willing to make the tough choices and sacrifices necessary in solving those problems. Now, with all that in mind, this week we're going to finish looking at God's command to wives. And then girls, hang on, we're going to get the guys next week as we look at God's command to husbands. But let's read verses 22 to 24 again out of Ephesians 5, where Paul said, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, is also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. God has ordained that the man is to be the head of his family, which includes, of course, his wife. But he himself is subject to Jesus, who is head of the church, which includes families, which means husbands and wives are both subject to Jesus. He is our Lord, but he has ordained that in marriage, the wife is to submit herself to her husband. The Greek word again for submit is hupotasso. It literally means to voluntarily place yourself under the authority of another. This has nothing to do with superiority and inferiority. As we have already pointed out, this is a neutral word. It not, has nothing to do with who's better than anyone else. We know the scriptures teach very clearly that men and women are equal in the eyes of God. Galatians 3.28 says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in the eyes of God, men and women are absolutely equal. But see, some people use that equality to then negate or to, to write off this idea of authority and submission. You can have people who are equal on one level, and yet one is in authority over the other. When it comes to the marriage, the husband is in authority over his wife, and God says she is to submit to him. That authority is an absolute, like we said last time. Verse 22, Paul ends with the words, as to the Lord. In other words, look, this submission is not absolute. If the husband says to his wife one day, let's go out and get drunk and uh, let's go down to the X-rated uh, movie theater and watch some pornography. Well, obviously, a godly woman is going to say, I can't do that. My Lord Jesus Christ would never tell me to do something like that. I have to obey him. So it's not an absolute kind of a submission. And again, there is equality here. We said last time that, you know, Jesus and the Father are absolutely equal. They're both part of the Godhead along with the Holy Spirit. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, absolutely equal. They're, they're all one God. And yet Jesus said, my Father is greater than I. What does that mean? That when he came down and was born of a virgin, took on the body of a human being, he placed himself voluntarily under his Father's authority. And we read the Gospels, Jesus didn't resist, resent, or chafe under the Father's authority. He joyfully and willingly submitted to that authority, as Paul says the wife is to do toward her husband. Now, before the fall, that was no problem because there wasn't any sin in the world. And so Adam and Eve functioned very effortlessly in that whole authority structure. And yet after the fall, everything changed. Sin entered into the world. And through sin, we now have the battle of the sexes. We have feminism and chauvinism. That's the problem. Everyone fighting for supremacy. This was true in Paul's day, as well as in our own day, right? But in Paul's day, there was a, a women's liberation movement that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. We see this especially in Corinth, where women refused to wear the head coverings that distinguished them as respected, uh, godly Christian wives from the prostitutes that lived and worked in Corinth who did not wear the head coverings because, after all, if you're a prostitute, you can't cover your face. You know, guys have to see what they're paying for, essentially. And you had a gigantic temple on the Acropolis, the Temple of Aphrodite there in Corinth. It was, it was manned by a thousand temple priests and priestesses who were professional prostitutes. And they would come into the city every night and they would solicit the men through their prostitution and the money went for the upkeep of the temple. Well, the women prostitutes were not veiled. And so for Christians living in Corinth, the women, uh, they started to tap into this whole liberation idea and they were telling their husbands, hey, I'm free in Christ. I don't have to wear a veil. Paul says, well, you're dishonoring your husband. You look like a prostitute. In fact, one historian uh, summed it up this way. He said, and I quote, he said, we know from secular history that various movements of women's liberation and feminism appeared in the Roman Empire during New Testament times. Women would often take off their veils or other head coverings and cut their hair in order to look like men, as much as in our own day. Some women are demanding to be treated exactly like men, and they attack marriage and the raising of children as unjust restrictions to their rights. They asserted their independence by leaving their husbands in homes, refusing to care for their children, living with other men, demanding jobs traditionally held by men, wearing men's clothing and hairdos, and by discarding all signs of femininity. It is likely that some of the believers in Corinth were influenced by those movements and as a sign of protest and independence refused to cover their heads at appropriate times, end quote. See, this has been going on for a very long time. Our country for the last generation. We're seeing these ideas pumped into the heads of the women in our country. Feminists are telling them, don't get married, it's slavery. Uh, stay single. But those who have gotten married, they preach, look, you don't have to submit to your husband. Who is he? You're equal. You go out, you pursue a career. If he can, you can, that kind of thing. And uh, this is the world's philosophy being pumped into women in this country and even Christian women. The world is encouraging women to be rebellious, aggressive, and fiercely independent. Don't submit to your husbands. Don't have kids. Don't buy into that slavery. But again, we as Christians have got to stop letting the world conform our thinking to its ways. We have to transform our thoughts through the word of God that we think what God has said. We think the thoughts of God and do what he has said. In God's word, we looked at 1 Peter 3 last week. 
where Peter says that God wants women to cultivate the inward beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit coupled with a submissive attitude which is very precious in the sight of God. Not very precious in the sight of the world, but it's very precious in the sight of God. Now, part of that means that Christian women are not only to submit themselves to their husbands, but also, of course, to God and the role that he has called them to as wives and mothers. And here's where it gets sticky, with the people of the world especially. It shouldn't with godly Christian women, but again, so many Christian women have been brainwashed by the world, it's hard for them to let go of these things. And the guys have their own hang-ups, which we'll look at next week. Um, So it's not just the ladies, okay? But part of what it means to be a godly woman is to submit not only to your husband's authority, but of course to God in what he has called you to as the role that you have as a wife and mother. What does that role look like? Well, turn to Titus chapter 2. You thought there were fireworks yesterday. Well, I'll tell you what, you ain't seen nothing. In Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 3, Paul is admonishing the older women in the church. He said, The older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. These older women in the church were probably those who no longer had children at home. All their kids had grown up and left the house, and now they had time to teach. But Paul said, only if they themselves were spiritually mature and godly. That's why he adds, they must be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. In other words, teachers of the things of God, not of the world, is the idea. Now, who and what were these older women to teach? Well, verse 4, the older women to teach the younger. They admonished the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Paul is saying that older Christian women are to teach the younger Christian wives and mothers in the church by word and example that their husband and children are their primary ministry that God has given to them. Listen, if you're a young mother and you're a Christian, you need to understand that your primary ministry is that you love your husband, love your kids, take care of your home. Provide for your family a godly environment. There is no greater calling than that for a young woman. Paul goes on to say that the older women are also to teach the younger women, verse 5, to be, first of all, discreet. The Greek word means self-restrained in all passions and desires. Chaste means pure and modest. Homemakers, we'll get back to that word in a moment. Good means moral obedient to their own husbands. Now that sounds like something against what we said last week. We said that the word for a woman to submit to her husband is not the same as to obey her husband, like in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Paul uses the different Greek word, hupakuo, to say, children, obey your parents, slaves, obey your master. We said women are not children or slaves. They are not to stand in the corner, you know, waiting for the king to, you know, command her to get whatever he wants. And, you know, she runs around uh, fulfilling her husband's every command. No, it's not hupakuo, it's hupatasso, submission, different word. Well, why does Peter then, or Paul in Titus 2 verse 5, use the word obedient? Well, he doesn't. The Greek is hupatasso. It means to submit, be submissive to their own husbands. Why is all this important? 
he ends that verse by saying that the word of God may not be blasphemed. This is a very important point. The issue here that Paul is stressing through all of this is that God wants us to honor and to obey all that he has said. Not just what we like or want to obey. All that he has said, that he might be honored and glorified and we might be blessed. When Christians don't honor and obey what God has said, we are in effect saying to the world, you know, the Bible isn't really to be taken seriously for everyday living. It was okay for those folks back then, but not for today. I mean, you know, the idea that we could apply today all that the Bible has to say with regard to marriage and family, well, that's really unrealistic and impractical. I don't know if you've heard that from Christians. I have. You know what that does? The world picks up on that and mocks the Bible as being irrelevant and outdated and Christians as stupid hypocrites for claiming to believe in a book they don't even take seriously. See, there is such a disconnect today between what Christians say, they not all Christians, but a large segment of the Christian church. There's a great gulf between what Christians say they believe and how they actually live their lives. I've seen it as a pastor. I've seen people, when I'm teaching the Bible, they are nodding their heads in agreement. But when it comes then to making important life decisions, they don't really pray about it. They don't really seek the mind of God. They don't fast. They don't check the scriptures to see if God gives them any principle that they can go by. They just do what they feel. Is it any wonder why the world looks at us and goes, you know, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You know, that's, we've earned that to a large degree. What are we saying to the world? What are we, you know, talk is cheap. We can all talk the talk. Are we walking the walk? And Paul is saying, look, when you give lip service to these things but don't actually live them out in your life, you are preaching a terrible message to the world. You are telling the world that, look, although you say you believe in the Bible, you don't really believe in it. You don't really think you can apply these things into your life today. You write them off because they're difficult and maybe they step on your toes. And after, it's just easier to say, well, you know, it was really more for those people back then, but our lives are way too complicated today to apply these. No, you know, come on. We, it, it's kind of impractical. And the world goes, look at you guys. You're hypocrites. You don't really believe what you say you believe because you don't live it. Now, I want to draw your attention to Titus chapter 2, verse 5. I want you to notice the word homemaker there. Homemakers. Paul said the older women are to teach the younger women, among other things, to be homemakers. And again, folks, this is a divine command from God to wives who are mothers. This is not my opinion. I didn't say this. God did. You see, we have a tremendous problem in America today. You know what it is? Nobody's home. Nobody's home. Do you realize that there are roughly 60 to 70 million working mothers in America? 15 to 20 million of those have small children. One out of every three mothers with a child under three works a full-time job. The question is, who's raising the kids? Who's taking care of the home? What does God have to say about all this? Well, Titus 2 verse 5 tells us. It says that wives are to be home makers. The Greek word is oikurgos. comes from two different Greek words. Oikos is the word for home. Ergon is a Greek word that means work, but the emphasis in the, New, in the New Testament always involves a job or a task. That's why it is translated much of the time in the Greek lexicons or dictionaries, employment. Employment. 
So God is saying here that younger women with children are to be employed at home. That Greek word ergon is used throughout the New Testament. I'll just give you one example. In John chapter 17, verse 4, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed to his father, and he said, Father, I have finished the work, ergon, you gave me to do. In other words, I have finished the task or assignment that you gave me to do. Ergon means an assignment or a task. It had a beginning, it has an end. Jesus said, I came to fulfill your purpose, your mission. You gave me an assignment. I started it, I have completed it. I have finished the work you've given me to do. And I believe that what Paul is saying here is you older women teach the younger women that their task and God-given assignment is their family and home. So when a young mother comes to me, a young Christian mother, and says, well, what do you think about me going out and working a full-time job pursuing a career? I take her to Titus 2, verse 5, and I show her what God has said. Look, it says here that you're to be a lover of your husband, of your children, you are to make your work, quote-unquote, or your career, your home. You're to be employed at home and fulfill the assignment God has given to you. This is the task God has given to you at this stage in your life. When the kids grow up, things are going to change. You'll have another assignment from God. Right now, though, when those kids are young, your assignment as a Christian mother is to raise those children. That's your God-given task. And I know a lot of them will say to me, wait a minute, but I have a great job. I make good money. We need that money. But what does God say? See, we can always rationalize anything, can't we? We can always figure out a reason why it's wrong for everybody else, but for me, I've got good reasons why I don't really have to do it the way God has said. You know, I think of King Saul in the Old Testament, how God gave him an assignment and that was to wipe out the Amalekites, this nation that had ambushed God's people as they came out of the promised land. And as they came out of the promised land and were making their way towards, excuse me, they came out of Egypt and were making their way towards the promised land, the Amalekites attacked. You can read about this in, the, in the Exodus chapter 15. And it was so reprehensible what they did. They attacked the back of the line. You got two and a half million people working their way from Egypt to the promised land. And the Amalekites attacked the very back of the line. You know who was back there in the back of the line? The elderly, the handicapped, the sickly. Those people who, couldn't, who were too weak to keep up, too weak to fight, they picked those people off first. And God says, you know what? That was such a reprehensible thing. When you come into the promised land, at one point, I'm going to give a command, and he did to Saul, to go and to wipe out the Amalekites, everybody, including the animals. Saul goes, takes the armies of Israel, he wipes out most of them, keeps King Agag alive, and all the choicest animals. God said to Samuel, you better go talk to Saul. He hasn't obeyed what I said. So Samuel goes and confronts Saul, and Saul is coming back from the battle. He's all excited and all, and oh, blessed are you of the Lord. Oh, we have done all the Lord has commanded us to do. Samuel said, if you've done everything God said to do, how come I hear all this bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen in my ears? Oh, but we have obeyed the voice of the Lord, except we thought it wise to keep the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord our God. See how he rationalized it? Why kill all these good animals? We can sacrifice them to God. Samuel said, Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to listen to the voice of God is better than the fat of rams. 
because you have not obeyed God in this matter, God is going to judge you. Because he said, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness against what God has said is as iniquity and idolatry. In this you have done foolishly. It's all We can always rationalize why, even though God has told us to do something, we have a better way. We, we've come up with a better way of doing it. In that regard, we always act foolishly. I don't care what our intentions are. If you disobey God, you act foolishly. Obedience is what God is after. He doesn't want us to rationalize His Word. He wants us to obey His Word. And so... To the young moms, Paul is saying, look, your, your God-given assignment and task is to stay home with those kids, to raise them. Now, some would say, well, what about when my kids go to school? Well, you know, this is what Cindy and I did. For years, when the kids were small, she stayed home. She didn't have a car. We couldn't afford a car for her. I had the car. I was out working. I was working ministry plus a part-time job, sometimes two part-time jobs to make ends meet, because we believe God wanted her home with the kids. And it was tough. There was a lot of times I'd be, I had a habit of whenever I bought something and I had some change, I'd throw it in my glove box. There's been more than one occasion I was picking pennies out of the glove box to buy a gallon of milk. But you know what? God always provided. And then when the kids finally, our youngest was finally in school all day long, then she got a job working for the school district where when the kids were off, she was off. Summertime, she was free all summer. That's the way we worked it. Uh, we just felt very strongly about this. To, uh, and that was public school. And yet we kept an eye on what was going on. We met the teachers. We looked at the curriculum. Today, public school, is just, this is going back some years now. Today, public school has really degenerated. Now, there's some great teachers still. Um, and, and I know if you can't afford private school or God has not called you to homeschool and pray real hard and get involved in your local public school and just pray that God will just be gracious and give your kids good teachers. But I, I just think that when the kids are small and not in school all day, that's especially a time when a young mom needs to be there with those kids. I, I just really believe that most of the problems we're seeing in our society with regard to juvenile delinquency and young people being so out of control, you know, and getting messed up on drugs and alcohol and all the sexual immorality, I think it's directly attributable to the loss of moms in the home. And it's not all the mom's fault. There are so many fathers that have abandoned their kids that have forced women to have to go to work. There's a lot of working moms who would love to stay home and raise their kids. So this is not, uh, I'm not laying this all on the step or the doorstep of, of the women now. It's a societal problem. Because men and women are not doing what God is calling us to do. My point is, though, that nobody is home oftentimes for these kids, and they're pretty much left to fend for themselves. And much of the input they, received on, they receive on social, moral, and spiritual issues is coming from cable TV. Their music, which includes everything from hard rock to death rock, which is a fusion of gothic and punk, very dark and nihilistic, not to mention the gangster rap and the hip-hop. You ever listen to some of that stuff? And these kids have this stuff strapped to their heads for hours every day. Not to mention their peers giving them all kinds of input on how they should live their lives. Talk about the blind leading the blind. 
I just read yesterday in an article on one of the internet news services I read that they've established a web page called WWDD. You say, wait, isn't that a typo? Shouldn't it be WWJD? What would Jesus do? Oh, no. This is what would Dumbledore do, where you can go to Harry Potter and get input on social issues like gay marriage and all kinds of other things that the kids are logging on to and going to these sources to be taught what's going on in the world. It's a full-on frontal assault against our kids. And so many Christians are buying into this stuff. I can't tell you how many Christians let their kids read Harry Potter books. But isn't it good they're reading? <laughs> well, uh, no. You know, I mean, you know, depends on what they're reading. I mean, good heavens, let's, let's have a little discernment here. What about single moms or divorced or widowed mothers that have no choice but to work outside the home? to support their families. Well, my heart goes out to, to women that are in that position. And there's a lot of women that don't want to have to do that. They want to be home with their kids. And so you pray and ask God to bring a godly husband into your life who will be a good provider so that you can stay home and be with the kids and raise them. Until that time, find a good church with godly men in it that can be a father figure to those kids because I think that God designed the family with a father and mother for a reason. Because both father and mother bring input into those children that balances. You know, the dads were more the disciplinarians, right? The moms, the nurturers, and so on. That's a good balance, isn't it? But I believe if you're in a situation like that, God will give you extra grace. He knows you want to do what's right. He knows that you're in a situation that you really, it's not something you can control right now, and you're just trying to make ends meet and, and, and your family to survive. He understands that. He will be a father to those kids. He will be a husband to you in the sense that he will protect and provide for you. But pray that God would work and that he would lead you a godly husband. Now, let me just say this. and I'm not thinking of anybody when I say this. Okay, I'm making all kinds of friends today. But here, uh, I'll tell you what I also don't think is biblical. I don't think it's biblical that women are working outside the home while the husbands are at home raising the kids. You see this quite a bit today. The moms are out working full-time jobs, and the husbands are home raising the kids. And, and of course, I think it's better than putting them into daycare, but it's not ideal at all. I think it's taking what God has ordained and turning it upside down. I find it hard to believe a woman is going to respect a man who, when she's going off to work, is sitting there in his underwear reading the newspaper. Or sipping coffee and, and, uh, and catching up on the sports from last night or whatever it might be. I, I think it's hard for a woman to respect a man like that. Now, I realize there are times when you can't have the ideal. I was thinking about uh, examples of this. I was thinking about wartime. You know, World War II, so many men were out fighting the war, the wives had to stay home and be father and mother and protector and provider for their kids. But that's not our normal situation, right? There are times when you have something that is not a normal thing, but it's a survival thing. You have to just do what you have to do. I know that these are tough economic times we're in. A lot of guys have lost their jobs and are trying desperately to find new jobs. And because of it, some of the women who have had degrees or careers before they got married are able to find work before the guys. So you have a situation where the wives are working right now and the guys are home, not because they, either one of them wants it that way. It just is what it is right now. And I understand that. Sometimes you have to do what you have to do. 
but it isn't the norm, all right? It's not the ideal. Pray to God that he would work it out where you can have the ideal where the husband is out working and the mom can be home with those children. I think, though, all too often, it's not about the tough economic times that cause people to do these things and to get things out of balance. It happens in great economic times, right? The whole 90s and up until last August, we were in this incredible period of prosperity in this country, weren't we? We were not in survival mode. It was happy time, you know? It was the good times rolling. It was the roaring 20s all over again. And I think too often what happens is that couples, you know, young couples get married and they want a particular house and a couple of cars and, you know, maybe a camper or a boat. And so what they decide to do is, if they're going to have all those things, is they both have to work. And then after two or three years, after they've locked themselves into a certain strata, economic strata and lifestyle that demands a double income, guess what? A child comes along. And so what happens then? Well, the mother stays home for three months and then puts the child in daycare or with a babysitter and goes back to work. Call me old-fashioned. I just feel that God does not give a woman a child to hand over to a daycare center, a group of strangers essentially, to raise that child eight hours a day. I believe that's your responsibility. That's your assignment from God. And guys, if you need extra money to make ends meet, then you need to go out and get another job. That's your responsibility before God. And if you do that and you still can't make ends meet financially, then guess what? Now it's time to start cutting out non-essentials. And I don't have to tell you guys how much money we typically spend going out to eat, stuff like cable TV with extended movie packages, which you shouldn't even have anyways. I mean, two cars, there's a lot of things we want, but we don't really need. I, I tell you what, life is all about choices. It's all about choices. You know, a, a lot of times we are faced with priorities and the choices that go along with those priorities. Are we going to put God first and then our families and do what God wants us to do as wives, uh, mothers, husbands, and fathers? Or are we going to opt to do what we want and make choices that, you know, because we want a certain lifestyle or we want to have certain things in life? It's all about really making, getting your priorities where they should be and then making choices that um, will allow you to pursue your priorities. And if God and family are your priorities, guess what? You're going to make choices that reflect that. But a lot of times at this point, and I'm talking about Christian couples now, when they hear these things taught, and they know their families are not really functioning the way God has said, you know what they say to me oftentimes? Well, it works for us. It works for us. My, husband's, my wife's got a great job, so she goes out and works, and I stay home raising the kids, and guess what? Nothing bad is happening to our family. It works for us. Look, whenever we do something God says not to do, whenever we kind of get things, you know, where we rationalize and justify why what we're doing is okay, even though God said it's not okay, that doesn't mean the consequences are going to fall immediately on our families. You know, there's a lot of things we can do in life that we don't see the consequences right away. You could smoke cigarettes for 30 years, you know, and all that time go, well, I know that people say it's bad, but nothing bad has happened to me. And all the while, cancer has been forming. Or something else. You can fill in the blanks. I know one thing. We cannot violate what God has said and do it with impunity. There are consequences. God says, look, I'm telling you, 
that this is the way your family is to function. If you deviate from this, it's not that I'm going to punish you or judge you. You're going to bring consequences into your families. It's like if God says, don't put your hand on the fire, you're going to get burned. And you put your hand on the fire and get burned. Is that a judgment from God or just the consequence of an irresponsible act? God is saying, look, this I know how it works. I designed it. If you do it my way, your family's going to be blessed. If you don't do it my way, you're going to reap negative consequences. And I know others would say at this point, well, you know, but yes, we're both working and our kids are in daycare all day, but look how God is blessing us. Look, I don't care what kind of material things you've got. I don't care what kind of house you live in, what kind of cars you drive, what kind of vacations you go on. You know what? That is not necessarily proof that God is blessing you. Any more than the drug dealer drives a fancy car, lives in a nice house, and can say, well, look how God's blessing me. One author put it this way. He said, if the wife has to violate her God-given mandate to her family and leave the children to go to work to get more material things, then you're confusing the blessings of God with disobedient presumption, end quote. And I know there are always exceptions why you have to do things, you know, legitimate exceptions. Like if a husband is too physically weak to work a second job or maybe even work at all and the wife has to go to work to provide. That's not a situation that they want. It just is what it is. Sometimes you have to just do what you have to do. And I believe if you find yourself in a situation like that, God will give you grace. He knows your heart. He knows your it's not materialism or selfishness. It's just you got to do what you got to do sometimes. So God is not unreasonable here. He's not against you. That if you don't follow everything to the letter, he's going to you know, bring the hammer down. No. He's saying, look, in general, this is the way it sh should be. There are exceptions. I know people have physical issues and so on and so forth. But um, if you seek to do it my way, it's going to work the way I have designed it to work. And you'll be blessed. Let me just say this, and I'll get off this and we'll end. I know that a double income, two people working, the double income is very tempting. Uh, double incomes produce more buying power. That's true. But they also put a couple in a higher tax bracket. That's also true. Also, by the time the wife buys a new wardrobe for work and a, and a car, which includes maintenance and gas, of course, and then you add into all that the cost of daycare, which can be substantial if you have more than one child. I'm not sure a lot of women break even after all of that. After all that they've got to uh, spend to go back to work, I'm not so sure that many of them wind up benefiting, really. And even if you did, still doesn't make it right. The money is not the bottom line. Now, to close, I want to just, you know, I want, to, I want you to turn to Proverbs 31. You probably knew this was coming, didn't you? Because just because God says that you as a young woman are to stay at home and raise those kids doesn't mean that you are not productive. Raising small kids, you're going to be very productive. But it doesn't mean you can't do things from your home that will benefit your family financially. Here's something. This section is you know, entitled The Virtuous Woman out of Proverbs 31. Let's start in verse 10. I'm going to read this to you out of the New Living Translation. It kind of puts it in a little more modern language. Who can find a virtuous and capable wife? She is more precious than rubies. Her husband can trust her, and she will greatly enrich his life. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. 
In other words, he can trust her with the checkbook or the credit card. She finds wool and flax and busily spins it. She is like a merchant ship bringing her food from afar. She gets up before dawn to prepare breakfast for her household and plan the day's work for her servant girls. She goes to inspect a field and buys it. And with her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Very industrious gal. Family is first, but man, she's got a business out of the house and she's doing all kinds of things. She is energetic and strong, a hard worker. She makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamp burns late into the night. Her hands are busy spinning thread, her fingers twisting fiber. She extends a helping hand to the poor and opens her arms to the needy. She has no fear of winter for her household, for everyone has warm clothes. She's taking care of that. She makes her own bedspreads. Wow. She dresses in fine linen and purple gowns. She doesn't walk around in a frumpy house coat. She dresses up. She looks good. Her husband is well known in the city, at the city gates where he sits with other civic leaders. She makes bel belted linen garments and sashes to sell to the merchants. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she laughs without fear of the future. I mean, she's got it covered. She's not worried about the future. She's laid up supplies. She's got everything, you know, she's, everything's on a budget. Everything's taken care of. When she speaks, her words are wise. She gives instructions with kindness. She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. Her children stand and bless her. Her husband praises her. He praises her by saying, There are many virtuous and capable women in the world, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive, and beauty does not last. But a woman who fears the Lord will, greatly, will be greatly praised. Reward her for all she has done. Let her deeds publicly declare her praise. I'm not a woman, but I would imagine as a woman reading that, it's kind of a guilt trip, isn't it? Can I just say this to kind of balance it out a little bit? Do you realize that this woman doesn't really exist? Think about that. This woman doesn't really exist. She is the ideal woman. She's perfect, okay? Now, look, we're going to find in Ephesians 5 as we move into the section on the husbands, the husbands have a role model, Jesus Christ. He's a man we are men. He is our role model. Jesus is perfect, isn't he? He's the perfect husband to his bride, the church. Will we as earthly men, will we ever be perfect to our wives? Will we ever be perfect husbands? No. But Jesus is the standard, right? He's the goal that we as men should attain, should seek to attain to. I mean, we'll never reach his perfection, but that should be the, the goal, to be as much like Jesus to our wives as he is to his bride. Well, who do the women have as a role model in Scripture? Well, they have the virtuous woman. She's also perfect. And on this earth, you're probably, ladies, never going to fully match up to her. You're never going to fully attain to this woman either. But she's something to shoot for, right? I mean, the idea is that these are ideal role models that we should be pursuing we should be trying to be more like not less like and as we seek to do better every day as husbands and wives looking to jesus or even this woman in in proverbs 31 you know god will bless it he sees the heart he knows you want to be a better wife he knows you guys want to be better husbands and he will bless and honor that you'll never be perfect but at least that's something to work towards so keep that in mind okay because when i read that i mean i just 
I, I have to laugh because I feel sorry for you gals because as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this girl, this woman is perfect. I mean, you know, how could any woman ever match this? Well, I'm not so sure it is possible this side of glory, but it is something to work for. And next week, guys, don't laugh too loud. you got something to work for, too. Jesus, he is real. And he wants you to be like him to your wife. So we'll get into that next week. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. Father, thank you that although we will never be perfect this side of glory in obeying everything to, that you have said as our Lord Jesus did, yet, Father, that is our goal. We want to be obedient in everything. We want to honor you, Lord, with our lives. We don't want to say we believe your word and, the, and then go out and live contrary to your word. We don't want to preach with our lives a message to the world that your word is irrelevant and outdated and we really don't take it seriously when it says the, to do the things that you want us to do, especially as husbands and wives in marriage. Forgive us, Lord. We want the word to become flesh in our lives. In other words, we want to be a living representation of your word to this world. And so, Lord, give us grace. We are far from perfect, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So make us like you, Lord. Cleanse our minds from the garbage and the indoctrination of the world. And fill our minds with your word. And give us power by your spirit to live all that we learn. Because we love you and desire to glorify you with our lives. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.